Welcome to Full Rigor, a Florida true crime podcast. I'm Karen Curtis, still at home during the coronavirus pandemic, by myself with two cats surrounded by orchids. Well, earlier, last Christmas, I brought you a podcast about the Klan Christmas killings. In 1951, Harry T. and Harriet Moore were murdered on Christmas Day. It was their silver anniversary when a bomb that was set by the Klan blew up underneath their home. It was right underneath their bedroom in Mims, Florida. Harriet Moore was a classroom teacher. Both were civil rights activists here in Florida. And also the Klan marched down Worth Avenue on Palm Beach about 30 years after that. African Americans in Florida have not been treated well. But that seems to be true in the South. Look what just happened in Brunswick, Georgia. A 25-year-old African-American guy was jogging down the road in a neighborhood broad daylight on a Sunday in February. And these two white men, the McMichaels, father and son duo there, Gregory and Travis, spot him and they think he's responsible, that he's the guy that's been burglarizing homes in the area. So they follow him and then they pull up next to him and cut him off. He stops and then the son, Travis, jumps out of the back of the truck with a shotgun. Well, push comes to shove and the shotgun goes off twice, killing the jogger. It's all caught on videotape as well, which is really shocking. But were it not for this tape, and just because the coronavirus has all of our attention, these two guys may never have been charged with murder. Initially after the shooting, the DA's office said it was in self-defense and nothing happened. There was no arrest. It's taken until May, yesterday, May 7th, for them to arrest these two men. Now, according to the Glynn County Police Report, Gregory McMichael later told officers that he thought Aubrey looked like a person suspected in a series of recent break-ins in the area. So initially after the shooting, the police believed the father and son duo's story that this guy attacked them and that he was a burglar. But now that this video has surfaced, which shows him being shot twice by the son and then trying to run away and then falling on the pavement, the truth is told. Wanda Cooper, Aubrey's mother, said that when police notified her of her son's death, she was told her son was involved in a burglary and that there was a confrontation between her son and the homeowner and there was a struggle over a gun. So it's been since February 23rd until May 7th, now that this video has come out, for these two to be charged. It's just unbelievable. Yes, we've had the coronavirus outbreak and the lockdown and everything, but there's really no excuse for this. It's appalling. And what's going to happen to these guys now that they're in jail? Because they are charged with gunning down an unarmed, jogging black man. They are going to face a brutal existence in jail, which obviously is well-deserved. So defenders of the men are pointing to a shoplifting conviction in Aubrey's past, but according to the family's attorney, the reference to alleged conduct from high school or shoplifting is absurd and has nothing to do with his murder. I tell you this to tell you another story that happened in Florida, in the little town of Rosewood. It's called the Rosewood Massacre. It was an attack on the predominantly African-American town of Rosewood, Florida in 1923 by large groups of whites. The town was entirely destroyed, burned to the ground by the end of the violence, and the residents were driven out permanently. The story was mostly forgotten until the 1980s when it was revived and brought to the public's attention by a writer in St. Petersburg. 
So on January 1st, 1923 in Sumner, Florida, 22-year-old Fanny Taylor, this whole thing revolves around Fanny Taylor. She was heard screaming by a neighbor, and the neighbor found her covered in bruises and claiming a big, huge black man, she used the N-word, had entered her house and had assaulted her, beat her up. The incident was reported to the sheriff, Robert Elias Walker, with Taylor specifying that she had not been raped. But the whole thing spiraled out of control. First of all, there's a question whether or not she was even attacked by a black man or was it her lover? She was married and she also had a lover. So it's unclear who beat her up. But her husband, James Taylor, no relation to the singer, a foreman at the mill, escalated the situation by gathering an angry mob of white citizens to hunt down the culprit. So in his defense, his wife says, I was attacked and beaten by a black man. The husband, not knowing that she's having an affair with another guy, boils over in a racist fueled fury and goes after the guy he believes beat his wife up. And just like these white guys in Georgia who pick out some random black guy thinking that he's a burglar, they pick out a random black guy. So these men also called for help from whites in neighboring counties, among them a group of about 500 Ku Klux Klan members who were in Gainesville for a rally. The Klan was quite prevalent back at that time. Now, the white mobs prowled the area searching the woods for any black man that they could find. Law enforcement found out that a black prisoner named Jesse Hunter had escaped a chain gang and immediately designated him the suspect. The mobs focused their searches on Hunter, convinced that he was being hidden by black residents. Now, searchers were led by dogs to the home of Aaron Carrier in Rosewood. Carrier was the nephew of Sarah Carrier, who did the laundry for Taylor. The horde of white men dragged Carrier out of his house, tied him to a car, and dragged him to Sumner, where he was cut loose and beaten. Sheriff Walker intervened, putting Carrier in his car and driving him to Gainesville, where he was placed under the protective custody of the sheriff there. Another mob showed up at the home at a blacksmith, Sam Carter, torturing him until he admitted that he was hiding Hunter and agreed to take them to the hiding spot. Carter led them into the woods, but when Hunter failed to appear, someone in the mob shot him. Man, his body was hung on a tree before the mob moved on. So that's two black men dead, still looking for Hunter. The sheriff's office had attempted and failed to break up white mobs and advised black workers to stay in their place of employment for safety. When the mob had gone to the carrier home, there were about 25 children in the house as well. And the whites surrounded it in the belief that Jesse Hunter was inside. Shots were fired. Sarah Carrier was shot in the head and died. Her son, Sylvester, also was killed by a gunshot. And two white attackers were killed. Now, the gun battle and standoff lasted overnight. It ended when the door was broken down by the white attackers. And the kids inside, thankfully, escaped through the back and made their way through the woods where they hid. Now, the news of the standoff at the Carrier House spread, newspapers inflating the number of dead and falsely reporting bands of armed black citizens going on a rampage. Even more white men poured into the area, believing that a race war had broken out. It's kind of like Manson's Helter Skelter. 
Some of the first targets of this influx were the churches in Rosewood. They were burned to the ground. Houses were attacked, first setting fire to them and then shooting people as they escaped from the burning buildings. It's unbelievable. Lexi Gordon was one of those murdered, taking a gunshot to her face. She hid under her burning house. Gordon, who suffered from typhoid fever, stayed behind, but sent her children fleeing when the white attackers approached her home. Many Rosewood citizens fled to the nearby swamps for safety, spending days hiding in the alligator-filled swamps. Some attempted to leave the swamps, but were turned back by men working for the sheriff. Now, James Carrier, the brother of Sylvester and the son of Sarah, did manage to get out of the swamp and take refuge with the help of a local turpentine factory manager. And then the white mob found him anyway and forced him to dig a grave for himself before they shot and killed him. Other members of the black community found help from the white families willing to shelter them. Some of the black women and children escaped thanks to John and William Bryce, two wealthy brothers who owned a train. The brothers drove their train to the area and invited escapees, afraid of being attacked by white mobs, but they did not allow black men. Many of those who fled on the train had been hidden in the home of a white general store owner, John Wright, and continued to do so throughout the violence. Sheriff Walker helped terrified residents make their way to Wright, who would then arrange escape with the help of the Bryce brothers. The Florida governor at the time, Kerry Hardy. He offered to send the National Guard to help, but Sheriff Walker declined the help. He believed that he had the situation under control. He reminds me of Jackie Gleason, the Sheriff Buford T. Justice from Smoking the Bandit. Hilarious. Just as incompetent. I think he coined the phrase, some bitch. So anyway, the Sheriff Walker, he declined the help. He said, nope, I don't need any help, some bitch. I got this under control. But the mobs began to disperse, and after several days... They returned to finish off the town. They burned it to the ground, what little remained of it. And except for the home of John Wright, a special grand jury and a special prosecutor were appointed by the governor to investigate the violence. The jury heard the testimonies of nearly 30 witnesses. The only ones that were left were white. And over several days, they claimed to not find enough evidence for prosecution. Surviving citizens of Rosewood did not return, fearful that the horrific bloodshed would happen again. So this story of Rosewood faded away quickly. Most newspapers stopped reporting on it. It went from Fanny saying that she was attacked and beaten by a black man to it morphing into that she was raped. And it just kept getting bigger and bigger until the whole town was burned down. Well, in 1982, when Gary Moore, a journalist for the St. Petersburg Times, resurrected the story through a series of articles, it gained national attention. The living survivors of the massacre at that point were in their 80s and 90s and came forward, led by the Rosewood descendant, Arnett Doctor, and demanded restitution from Florida. The action led to the passing of a bill awarding them $2 million and created an educational fund for descendants. Thank God. The bill also called for an investigation into the matter to clarify the events which Moore took part in. Further awareness was created through John Singleton's 1997 film, Rosewood, which dramatized the events. And one of the most frustrating aspects uh, surrounding the Rosewood massacre is the lack of historical consensus regarding Fannie Taylor. The way the story is portrayed in the movie actually puts all the blame and the onus on Fannie Taylor, that a white woman persuaded a white mob to kill her black attacker, which she lied about, allegedly. But surely she should have known if she was going to point the finger at a black man, what would happen. But there's really no way to know for sure what happened to her on that day. If she was really attacked by a black man, was she attacked by a lover 
We don't know. Say that she was attacked by a black man that doesn't warrant burning down the town and killing everybody. Historians seem unable to reach an agreement on how to address the violence directed at her, as well as the brutal violence that she caused. And so much surrounding the Rosewood Massacre is still unknown. The death toll is unclear. The existence of a mass grave is still hotly contested. Assumptions were made about Fanny Taylor, but remember, assumptions were made about the jogger who was attacked in Central Park, and they blamed it on the Central Park Five. And they called it the Wilding, and it ended up being one guy. When a woman is attacked brutally, there's hell to pay. And oftentimes there's a rush to justice, which leads to injustice. But the fact that this whole thing in Rosewood was covered up, hidden, and really was erased from history until some writer in St. Petersburg unearthed it is unbelievable as well. How many other stories are there like this that haven't been told and we are we unaware of? But it keeps resurfacing. History repeats itself. We're doomed. Just look what happened in Brunswick, Georgia. A father and son, two white guys, shooting down a black guy because they thought he was a burglar. What is it with citizens taking the law into their own hands? Granted, the survivors of the Rosewood Massacre were awarded $2 million, but the millions of dollars cannot replace those who were slaughtered in the massacre and certainly cannot erase history. That's why I wanted to share this story with you. That wraps up Full Rigor for this week. Thanks for joining me. Until next time. Peloton, let's go. This holiday, with the right music and the right motivation from world-class instructors. We're going to pick it up a notch. It's the holiday season. You might just surprise yourself with what you're capable of. Work out to thousands of live and on-demand classes, from running to cycling to yoga. Try Peloton risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only, not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. Peloton, motivation that moves you.